Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Travelcast, episode 439. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Sorry for the little break in episodes there, folks. Just getting all our ducks in a row for all our stories lined up this year for you. Ducks are way harder to choreograph than you'd think. Hey, get back to that slush pile, duck. You had your bathroom break. On this week's show, Weapons of Mass Deliberation. But first, a hundred word story. Travel. Travels are stories exactly 100 words, no more, no less. And ours this week comes from Peter Filio, and it's called The Heat of a Mother's Fire. Peter's a website developer and cryptography and blockchain programmer by trade. He alternates living in Florida and Wisconsin, depending on the season, with his wife, Erin, and two cats. Once again, my mother is late to her own son's birth. It's my 317th birthday today, if I'm counting correctly. I've already been pulled from the vats before I hear the whiskering skitter of my mother's bone-dry tentacles levering her into the birthing chamber. The specialists hook sensors into my soft, moist flesh, their heads bowed. With an unblinking eye, my mother watches the screens and readouts. They measure my strength, my worth, my suitability to inherit her empire. She pauses, considering. My ventricles flare. Maybe this time. My mother never once looks at me. Burn him. Try again. Ooh, enough to make anyone's ventricles flare. Our feature story this week is Rocket Surgery by Effie Seberg. Effie's a fantasy and science fiction writer. Her stories can be found in Women Destroy Science Fiction, special edition of Lightspeed Magazine, winner of the 2015 British Fantasy Award for Best Anthology, The Best of Galaxy's Edge, 2015 to 2017, Analog, Fireside Fiction, and Podcastle, amongst others. Effie lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. She likes to make sculpted cakes and bad puns. This story was first published in Analog, 2017. So without further ado, we bring you Rocket Surgery by Effie Seberg. We'd tested plenty of missiles before, but Teeny was the only one that convulsed when we cut him open. Oh, your listeners need more background? Okay, I'll back up a bit. 
Let me tell you, kids today don't know their history. Even locked up in here for the past 10 years, I can tell. No education. Good thing you're getting the real story out. Now, this was back when Hamazi was the supreme dictator of the Ambridian Republic, enemy number one. The whole military was buzzing about overthrowing him, and General Pittix, I guess he's presidential candidate Pittix now, wanted to make a name for himself. So the weapons division got a lot of money to make something spectacular. Previous missiles had AIs, of course. Precision navigation with plasma propulsion that could turn on a dime. Facial recognition to find the target and follow them. The Azimuth 5900 could detect genetic debris to avoid hitting decoys. And the Tarzan A80's nanoscales could rearrange to make the outer shell take on any shape to blend in with its surroundings. So if it needed to land to gather more intel, it could camo without suspicious shadows giving it away. But teeny... Teeny was something else altogether. No, of course, that wasn't the official name, but Predator TVACEW34W doesn't exactly trip off the tongue. So, can I continue? It was just the beginning of the new wetware computing. Nanotech could only get us so far, so instructions were entwined in ADNA, the quickly standardizing format for artificial DNA, and plastineurons wound their way through plasma rockets and payload decompressors and senso patches, all within a state-of-the-art nanoscale morphing skin that was even higher res than the Tarzans. Wetware was unpredictable, but it sure was efficient. Teeny was only the size of a golden retriever. We were in charge of the final testing, coding up the VR simulators for the finished bombs to see what they'd do. But for Teeny, the first one ever made of wetware, this was something new. It was like rocket surgery, skin flayed open and held with clips so we could hook the sims to the plastineurons, systems looking like life support threaded through and plugged in to maintain the beat of electrical impulses, and the largest manual we'd ever received on how not to kill the bomb in the process. We'd thought it was kind of funny, to tell you the truth, the idea of killing a machine that was built to kill others. But I've got to tell you, by the end, we saw Teeny like our own little baby, and we made damn sure we didn't kill him by accident. When we first cut him open to plug him in, Teeny convulsed. He twitched with the first slice, and the more we cut, the more the external nanoscales surged, changing his exterior to look like a tan desert rock, and then a pile of bricks, and then a fifty-pound tuna. His on-the-ground camo looked pretty good up close. So we went through the manual to figure out what we'd done, and couldn't find anything to help us. Betty said that maybe it was wetware instead of hardware we needed to treat more like it was alive, a he instead of an it, and maybe he's in pain when we cut. We all thought she'd gone bananas, but the next day she'd rustled up an IV with some dihydromorphine from home. She'd been taking care of her husband and had plenty extra. She stabbed it into one of Teeny's ion channels, no small feat since he was still spasming so bad, and opened the drip. And sure enough, the convulsions quieted down. Well, we thought that with behavior like this, we should probably tell people about it before we start the usual course of testing. So we sent hollows to the research team and to General Pittix. The research team was excited, but said that wetware was so unpredictable that they didn't have more guidance to give us. But please keep noting down what happened and proceed. Pittix, on the other hand, quickly replied with, Don't care as long as it does its mission right. Stop fucking around with scientific theory and fast-track this. Tells you a lot about him, doesn't it? 
People called him General Pitiless behind his back. We programmed the Sims with increasingly complex scenarios and watched little Teeny march right through them as long as we managed the painkiller drip. He never failed a mission, but the wetware really did have its quirks. The first time we saw something was up was when we coded in the nursery school mission. In our sim, the religious extremist group, we based it loosely on those nut jobs that were rolling around D.C. at the time, you know the ones, had a terror cell hidden under the basement of a nursery school. We had their weapons shipments staged in boxes of formula and diapers, and we coded up explosives to be hidden in the storehouses full of hollows for the kids and replacement parts for the nanny bots. Teeny caught us all by surprise that day. We expected a pretty standard M.O. Get in, watch the schedules to find a time when the kids were out and the nutjobs were in, and blammo. We'd coded it up to make sure that that wouldn't happen for a few days in the sim. But before we knew it, Teeny'd set himself up to look like a box of bot parts, then found the standard control net that let you repair the nanny bots and injected it with a virus. We'd just written the bots with basic off-the-shelf programming, but what do you know, they all got up and ushered the kids outside in broad daylight, even brought them down the road to an ice cream shop. Well, a shell of an ice cream shop, we'd only programmed the outside, and when the kids were all safely outside of the blast radius, only then did the blammo happen. Blew the compound of virtual smithereens, and from a location that minimized additional damage from the blown explosives in the warehouse. We didn't know how it could do that. Linda was working from home that day with the flu and had patched into the sim from bed. She'd lost her voice, so it turned off her calm and instead was typing in. And when she typed, Good job, Teeny, we were even more surprised to see an answer. Up in the left-hand corner of the VR view, right where no interface elements should be, we saw the words, Thank you, but the bomb did not explode. They were written in white, in an old-fashioned font we'd certainly never put into the sim. And Teeny wasn't supposed to be able to talk. Nothing in the manual said anything about that. We were all a bit spooked, but at the same time excited to actually talk to a test subject. So I typed back in the normal part of the UI. Your sensors did just what they were supposed to. We just took out the explosive material for testing. Testing? Yes, this is a simulation to see what you'll do in the real world. The simulation is not real. I see. Did I do good? I wrote, you did so much good. After thinking about it for a moment, I added in some imaginary evils that this nutjob group was planning. Teeny, the real Teeny, not the digital one in the sim, gave a little buzzed at that. His nanoscales fluttered. Pittix had said to fast-track as long as it did its job, but we contacted the research team anyway, taking initiative to bug the program, talking to us, visiting. This all seemed like more than just a wetware quirk. But they responded with the same thing. They didn't really know what the wetware would do. The only other wetware bots in circulation were the fake pets for rich people, and those each came with their own unprogrammable personality. Most of the pets were small and cute and devoted, but every so often one would come off the line with a mean glint in its eye and a tendency to bite. They checked, and there was no bug in the programming or a flaw in the wetware itself. That was just it. Wetware was unpredictable. 
Teeny gave the same bzzzt and nanoscale flutter after we complimented his performance in the next mission, taking out a fake dictator we'd made up, and again after blowing up an enemy sub as it surfaced to put out its own missile. Neither bzzzt seemed to do any damage, so we eventually figured it was like he was purring with satisfaction at a job well done. If the wetware pets can do it, why not a precision-guided missile? Teeny asked, Will this do good? After each VR mission. He was really growing on us, and we started taking turns writing up what messes he would be preventing. Not just that the death of that dictator was a good thing, but we'd also type in a story about a little girl who would now be able to go to school safely and grow up to be a great doctor and halt a plague in its tracks. Or how carefully blowing up a chemical munitions plant, yes, carefully, meant the tree frogs in the enemy's target bomb zone would get to live on and keep the malaria-bearing mosquitoes in check. He'd make the little bzzz sound each time. The more mission sims we sent him on, the more questions he started to ask. Will this do good? Was followed by, what would do more good? And Linda, who'd been a philosophy major before she got her head on straight and switched to testing, talked to him about Aquinas and Aristotle and Camus and Kant, and goodness knows who else before we told her to stop filling his rom with such nonsense. But philosophy twaddle or no, our boy was clever. He kept getting more creative in his solutions. I think my favorite test was the mission to take out the number two in an anarcho-green extremist group. Once he got to their compound, instead of finding the militia hippie, he plugged himself into their net. We had to code it up as he went along, and he hunted down the number one through old-school message boards and cryptoed messages. He waited until both the number one and two were in range, then got the both of them with one beautiful explosion. This will do more good, yes? He'd asked when the VR reset, his old-fashioned white text hovering at the left of my vision. I'd nodded, almost too proud to speak, and exhausted from the race of building the nets before he got to them. Even more good, I'd said, and that night me and the gals went for beers to cheer our genius boy. The next morning, when we got back to the test lab, Teeny had left a message for us. The number three will keep the group going. It has not ended. I must go back. Uh, no, I wrote, but your mission is ended. You blew up, remember? What happens to me when I blow up? You... I stopped typing into the sim. How do you explain to a rocket that he can only be used once and is dead and gone afterwards? You complete the mission when you blow up. But what happens to me after... Uh, that's it. You aren't anymore. Uh, there's no you left. Just like the number one and number two, they're not left. Yeah, that's right. Why shouldn't they be left? Well, because they're evil, remember? They were doing bad things. What if... His writing hesitated. What if I want to be left after in the real world? That's just not how this works, I said. But then I can't do good anymore, he paused. I thought it was good to do more good. It is, and by doing this you'll be doing more good than any one of us could ever do. Another pause. I see. What's it like not being left? Is it unpleasant? Too much philosophy. That was his problem. I'd have to have a chat with Linda. No, it's like... 
Like you float away into nothingness, and you don't need to worry about the world anymore. It's not unpleasant at all. He was quiet for a long time, but of course still passed the next sim with flying colors. Me and the gals, we started to plan a little graduation ceremony for him in the testing lab for when he was ready to go into action. Nothing fancy like what the top brass does, but then the top brass would never have a ceremony for a bomb. We were about two weeks out from it when General Pittix and five of his aides strode into the lab. He never came to the lab. Time's up, he said. The man always sounded like he was gargling rocks. Linda was the one that stepped up to him. We're not done. We still have seven more sims to make it—I mean, to take it through. Don't care. Bomb's been hitting the targets, yeah? He shifted his toothpick to the other side of his mouth. Well, yes, but— And has been performing the camouflage maneuvers, gathering good intelligence to optimize the hit? Yes, but the mechanisms of the hit were still a bit fluid. Good enough. We need it now. He looked around the lab until he found teeny tubes and wires sticking out of him like a coma patient. Is it gonna blow if we take those wires out? Well, no, but... Good. The Ambridians keep shooting our azimuths out of the sky, so we need something with better camo, and there's no Tarzans left. Hamazi's given us a gift. He'll be very vulnerable for the next three hours, and we need to hit him now. He started yanking out wires, and Teeny convulsed like he'd done on that first day. Stop that, cried Linda. You're hurting him. He gave her a look that would pulverize a small building. It's a bomb, he growled. Not a kitten. What's wrong with you? His steely gray eyes swept through the rest of the beeping machinery in the lab. So I stepped in. Top brass always responded better to fancy words. General, with all due respect, let us give you the procedures to ensure optimal performance. He grunted and agreed. Off Teeny went, rolling away on the little cart the general's aide had brought. We offered to brief Piddix with our full notes and recommendations, but he grunted again that as long as the bomb hit the targets and the sims without detection, he didn't give a flying fuck and to get the hell out of his way. They'd do the full debrief for the next one, where they actually needed the extra functionality. He was always an asshole. Tell your listeners not to vote for him. But anyway, our little boy was off to do good in the world. We'd sent off other bombs in the past, of course, but we'd never felt this kind of pride. Teeny was our bomb. He was smart. He would minimize civilian casualties and do more than the military ever imagined. And once that happened, there'd be more Teenies to make sure any time our military needed, we could strike with intelligence. Of course, those would be fully tested. We popped the champagne that night, cheering our brilliant little boy. We all assumed he would hit Hamazi that day, and that'd be that. The slippery bastard had survived more assassination attempts than anyone, and taking him out would be the best step to liberate the corrupt country. It was full of poor saps, starving and downtrodden, and mostly hating the freedoms of right-thinking countries like us. I think we even had the guy to prop up there instead, to make sure the new regime would be friendly. About two months later, with Hamazi still alive and kicking, we were in the lab doing a medicine to test out our systems when a bunch of Pittix's men came in and hauled us off to be court-martialed. You know what happened next. It's in the public record. But you want me to tell it anyway. Fine. One of them cut our power right before eight more stormed into the lab. 
They grabbed each of us two to one, marched us out and threw us in cells after, even though we'd done exactly as we were supposed to. They hauled in the research team, too. And what happened with Teeny? Well, you ever wonder why I'm in this tech-free cell and you had to come in person to talk with me? Why they confiscated your smart pad and any recording devices and only gave you a pencil and some paper? At first, I didn't even know what happened with them. Before they hauled me to this tech-free wing, I saw in the prison hollows that Hamazi went into a retirement home, a retirement home of all things, and his nephew took over. Now, I wouldn't say that the nephew was a particularly big fan of us, but the death to the pig's propaganda died out and he focused on his own country's stuff for a while. He kicked out the old council and set up a constitutional monarchy with a parliament, and within a few years the Ambridian Republic looked like it was in much better shape, with people getting fed and educated, and they started setting up peace treaties with countries left and right. Not us, though, but they did leave us be, and I guess that's fine. And of course, from that alone we were all tried for treason. They assumed we had some ties with the Hamasi regime and purposefully sent out a faulty bomb. Complete nonsense, of course. We were just doing our jobs, and it was Piddix who made it a rush job. Just covering his ass, really. But it takes more than the whiff of treason to get you locked up in a room with no screens, with real human guards coming to bring you food so you'd have no contact with bots. A few months after the Ambridian regime change, after I'd already been tried and sentenced and tossed away, I started seeing new pictures on the screens in my cell. Usually the pics are all things to keep us prisoners docile, you know? Beaches and forests and puppies and whatnot. Anyway, one day my pics were a little bit different. I started getting pics of Hamazi's nephew signing peace treaties, and Ambridian villages getting airdrops of medical supplies, and even pics of new schools being built. Now, I can't be sure exactly how Teeny did it. It might have been from him hacking into Hamazi's personal net and reprogramming his guard bots to shuffle him away, or giving intel to the nephew's guard bots to help maneuver him into power, or draining his bank accounts, or what. But I know it was him who made the change, and that he kept on working at it even after his propulsion system had been gutted out and he had to rely on his solar cells to keep going. What do you mean, how do I know? Well, let me tell you... It's how they decided I couldn't get any more access to tech. After those Ambridian picks kept coming every day for a few months, I got a little message. It was in the corner of the interface where no text should be. And in a white, old-fashioned font, all it said was, Did I do good? was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's close things out this week as usual with our 100 character story winner this week. We hold a weekly contest in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the TwitFix section where we decide on a winner and post it out early on our Twitter feed at Drabblecast. Our TwitFix winner this week is by first time poster and winner Beoptes. Here goes. Blind eyes, wide and searching, the confines of darkness. 
sounds of earthworms burrowing against pine. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that at Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Uncommercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but share it with a friend, tell the world, write us a review on iTunes, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer. Check out his staggering degree of awesomeness at bowkyer.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Abby Hilton, Bo Kyer, Jason Smith, Jason Cavella, Maria Dong, Jen Fisher, Tom Baker, that video of an eagle swooping down and taking off with a toddler, Adam Pratt, Sandra O'Dell, and yours truly, Norm Sherman. Reminding you, it's a bomb, not a kitten. What's wrong with you? The bartender shots last round An hour ago this place was loaded And noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all splurred when slow Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.